uncertainty. Our willingness to wonder is where mystery goes for shelter from the steady attack it endures from our demand for information, clarity and certainty, and from our rarely questioned right to know what we demand to know. Wonder serves mystery with grace and a humble approach. Resolving mystery is like dissecting someone you love to find out how they got so lovable. You might know something you didn't know before, but what you loved gets lost in the Inquisition. Stephen Jenkinson Since the Age of Enlightenment and the scientific revolutions that began in the 1500s, Western culture has prized rationality in matters of philosophy, logic, science, medicine, politics and economics. Rational thought and action have transformed every aspect of modern life. Rationality and ethics have brought us democracy, the industrial and technical revolutions, globalised market economics, higher productivity, better living standards and longer lifespans. But there's a lot about life that doesn't surrender its secrets, despite our cleverness. But our minds dislike uncertainty and we have a kind of mania for resolving unknowns. But some mysteries call for an approach that's in sympathy with the mythic dimensions of our life. The hidden folds of mystery came to my door three years ago when I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Myeloma is a bone marrow cancer affecting the plasma cells, which are a type of white blood cell that make antibodies and fight infection. Nobody knows what causes it. Epidemiologists have a hunch that something in the environment could play a role, maybe a toxin, a carcinogen, or exposure to ionising radiation. While myeloma's cause is a mystery, my diagnosis did solve one puzzle. For six months prior, I'd endured crippling pain in the ribs, spine and the skull, and despite rounds of x-rays, blood tests and physical examinations, nobody could pinpoint a cause. The pain escalated and so did the painkillers I was given, but they did little to lessen the shocking ache that came with any kind of movement. Finally, we got some clues after more blood tests, a bone biopsy and an MRI scan. The MRI scans showed my bones were riddled with fractures and lesions where they'd been eaten away. This explained the pain that made everything an agony. Sleeping, walking, sitting, even breathing was excruciating. Using the biopsy and blood samples, a medical team zeroed in on the presence of a protein that's a biomarker or a sign of myeloma. The normal value of this biomarker, called the light chain lambda score, is between 5 and 25. Mine was 2500, a result that put the diagnosis beyond doubt. Cancer means that a cell has mutated and reproduced copies of itself many times over, to the point where the mutants crowd out the normal cells and interfere with normal body functions. The mutations can happen by chance or as a result of a cancer-inducing exposure, usually a toxin or a carcinogen like asbestos or the chemicals in cigarettes. In my case, the mutant plasma cells were being made in the bone marrow where all blood cells are made, 
and they were multiplying and crowding out the normal plasma cells. Unlike the normal plasma cells, the cancerous ones were replicating uncontrollably, which had eventually built pressure inside the bones to the point of fracturing them. Left unchecked, the cancer cells would eventually invade and break all the bones in my skeletal system, resulting in permanent pain and major disability. There's no cure for myeloma. On average, one in two people survive five years from the time of diagnosis. One in three survive for ten years. When treatment fails, the cancer usually brings on death through complications like kidney failure or fatal blood clots in the lungs. A medical team recommended I start treatment on a cocktail of three chemotherapy drugs to kill the growing cancer cells. According to the biopsy, the cancer cells accounted for 71% of the plasma cells in my bone marrow. If chemotherapy could slash that figure to 15% or lower, I was told I might be a candidate for a stem cell transplant that could put the cancer into remission. Seven months later, the cancer was down to 15% and I'd qualified for an autologous stem cell transplant, which meant collecting and storing stem cells from my blood and reintroducing them a few days after a short burst of high-dose chemotherapy to eradicate all remaining cancer cells. Stem cell therapy is a promising area of medical science that harnesses the potential of stem cells to repair diseased and injured tissues. Stem cell transplants are now a standard treatment for myeloma patients. I was told I could decline the transplant and simply continue on the chemotherapy drugs with regular monitoring to assess their impact on the cancer. To help me decide, I was told the following. 95% of autologous stem cell transplants are successful, meaning the procedure goes as intended and the stem cells find their way to the bone marrow where they graft successfully and reboot the body's ability to make new cancer-free blood cells. Lots of things can go wrong in the procedure. Sometimes the stem cells get damaged in the process of harvesting them from the blood, freezing them in the liquid nitrogen and thawing them before they are reinfused into a transplant patient. Sometimes the graft, whereby the reinfused stem cells make their way to the bone marrow where they're meant to implant themselves and then grow into mature, viable blood cells, doesn't work, and patients have to repeat the procedure. The high-dose chemotherapy posed a small but real risk of causing major or fatal damage to several major organs, as well as infections, infertility and the risk of developing other cancers. And although a successful transplant can make myeloma go into remission for a time, it doesn't cure it and myeloma eventually returns. 30% of patients are in complete remission after an autologous stem cell transplant. This means tests show no sign of cancer, although it may be present and simply undetectable. The bulk of patients are in partial remission after a transplant, meaning the cancer is still present but at a more manageable level that reduces the odds of the medical risks associated with myeloma, like blood clots and kidney problems. Finally, 1-2% to 2 of patients die from the procedure, so that was something to consider too. Compared to patients who simply take chemotherapy for their myeloma, 
those who take high-dose chemotherapy combined with an autologous stem cell transplant have higher rates of remission, longer periods of remission, and longer lives overall. Patients who are treated with novel drugs after myeloma finally re-emerges following high-dose chemotherapy and a transplant do better than all other patients, including those who don't have transplants. My choice was clear to me, but there was a world of uncertainty about the risks and the benefits embedded in the two treatment pathways. A course of high-dose chemotherapy and a transplant could fail altogether. It could cause major organ damage, it could induce cancers, and it could kill me. Each of these outcomes were small but known risks. This choice also held a 30% chance of remission and a longer life compared to the option of declining the transplant and simply continuing on a course of long-term chemotherapy. So we rolled the dice and I chose the transplant. With my healthy stem cells on ice, I was hospitalised and put on high-dose melphalan, the chemo drug that would go to work on the residual cancer cells. High-dose chemotherapy is like a sledgehammer. It's a big, heavy weapon that kills all rapidly dividing cells, including the body's ability to make new blood cells. The melphalan made me weak and extremely ill. Within a week, I had no capacity to make new blood cells, and my blood cell counts went to zero. Then came nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, diarrhoea, insomnia. If I did manage to sleep, I was woken every two hours by a nurse who needed to record my vital signs, take a blood sample, and give me drugs to avert infection that could take hold in my weakened state. Then I was reinfused with my healthy stem cells. I flatlined for several more days before my blood count started to creep back from zero. Fifteen days later, I was weak and bald, but well enough to go home. The stem cell transplant had gone as planned and grafted successfully into my bone marrow, where the healthy stem cells had rebooted the blood-making process. People in remission live in an ambiguous state. Their test results suggest that they're free of the disease, but there's no way of knowing whether testing has simply failed to detect their disorder. After three years of chemotherapy, numerous bone biopsies, monthly blood tests, high-dose melphalan and a stem cell transplant, the pain's gone, the fractured bones have healed, but the cancer remains. Two regimens of novel chemotherapy drugs have failed to arrest the cancer's steady progress, and now I'm on my third line of drugs to halt its advancement. Not great, but manageable maybe. From a medical viewpoint, the way ahead is called maintenance therapy, which means ongoing chemotherapy and monitoring, and conversations about further treatment options if the cancer has its way. From a soul perspective, it's been another reminder to live mindfully and well, and to prepare the way forward by clearing the cobwebs from my heart, while knowing death is my closest companion. The fact is, life is endless, always morphing and re-emerging from the seeds of last season's bloom. There's no closure, no resolution, no certainty, and wishing it were otherwise only brings suffering. From this standpoint, cancer is a kind of existential gift, 
a metaphor for how life and death are always having their way with us in an infinitely unfolding mystery. To embrace what a rational voice might call intolerable uncertainty or ambiguity means leaping into the void of mystery. And going into freefall can be unnerving till you get the hang of it, because the illusion that we control our destinies is the cultural Kool-Aid that saturates a lot of what we think and feel and do. For the ego, the void of mystery feels like mayhem, a descent that will end badly unless we cling to a fix, a solution, an answer, no matter how presumptive or baseless or foolish. But it'd be a mistake to look for deep answers in certainty. Our souls know better than this and will take us where we need to, even if it feels like chaos to our mind's desire for a solid, reliable solution. Carl Jung was alleged to have said, If I'm forced to choose, I would rather be whole than be good. No stranger to mythology and metaphor, he might have been saying that a capacity to live in a deep and abiding way with mystery is wiser than forcing expedient answers upon inconvenient questions. Which is why I'm persuaded that engaging wholeheartedly in the messiness we may feel in the face of mystery can be a midwife to personhood and the arts of living and dying well. <laughs>